All right, we're on uh, week two of our study, the primer on Christianity, uh, and uh, we, we left off last week somewhere around point number seven, uh, and again, I want to emphasize the fact that Jesus really is our worldview. Everything that we do in our lives as men of God, our worldview history is controlled by God. History is controlled by Jesus. So that is why I say that our worldview uh, is Jesus Christ. And so Jesus, you know, we talked about the fact that the world will say, uh, people will come up to you and say, well, what's wrong with you Christians? Jesus never said he was the son of God, that he was never God. And it's an absurdity that they would say that. And they would say it because they're not, they're not well read. They're not well educated. They haven't read the Bible. And you know that we talked about multiple times when Jesus made that, that, that claim. Uh, in fact, he did it right in front of uh, Pilate and Herod um, in Luke 22, uh, verse 70, when, when they said to him, you made the claim that you are, son of, you are the son of God, uh, and uh, you made that claim, and Jesus said there, you are right in saying I am. Right there, you are right in saying I am. And that, that selection of words was, was no accident. He specifically used the words, I am, because if you were a Jew and you heard anybody say, I am, immediately you reflected back to the burning bush. You reflected back to when God spoke from the burning bush to Moses and Moses declaimed and said, what am I going to say when I, when I go back to Egypt? What am I going to say? Who sent me? How, who do I say? What's your name? How do I call you? And he's, God just said, you say that I am, that I am. And unfortunately, my voice isn't low enough to do it the way the Ten Commandments movie said it. But when, you know, by the way, you can watch that movie once a year, once a year, once a year. Uh, and, and it's, it's so incredibly uplifting. Uh, I am that I am. Well, when so Jesus said that, I am, I can imagine. I can just imagine what it was like. It was also like when they came to arrest him. You know, they said the theologians who do that talk about the number of soldiers, uh, temple soldiers and Roman soldiers that came uh, to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I had the privilege to be in that garden. Uh, and when they, when they came to arrest him uh, and they walked up to him uh, and uh, Jesus said to them, who is it that you are looking for? course, Jesus knew who they were looking for. But who is it? Who is it that you are looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. There was a thousand people there, ready, you know, fully armed. And Jesus looks at them and said, I am he. And it says in the Bible that they were, that they were pushed back, that they were pushed back. It was as if the presence of God took them and pushed them back. With the mere words of Jesus Christ, understanding the power of the words that come out of the mouth of God. And you reflect on that in your own life, the power of the words that come out of God. Uh, and so you see it over and over again. And so you reflect on that. So was Jesus deluded in making this claim? Was he really, really under a complete misapprehension, as the world would say? And clearly, absolutely not. Uh, you know, people understood that Jesus was, in fact, that, uh, of God himself. There was multiple proofs. What's the first proof? 
Well, the first proof was he led a perfect life. He led a perfect life. His entire life was sin-free. Nobody lives a perfect life, only God. And so here's Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. And you need to be able to understand that and explain that to a world that will never get it. Fully God and fully man. There were those who schemed against him to bring him to trial. And the only way they could do it was to bring false witnesses. They had to bring liars uh, in order to try to erode Jesus Christ uh, because he could never he could never stand in the face of evil. I and mean, he would never allow evil to take place. And so he was blameless. So I want you to turn, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Your high priest has walked in your shoes. Your Jesus knows what it's like to be a man in a world, to be tempted, to be swimming in a sea of evil. Jesus did it. He walked it. He lived every aspect of that. And so you need to understand that, that he is your high priest. And as this high priest, he has been tempted like you, but without sin. That's your Christ. That's your Savior. That's what you have. Second, the evidence of, of the fact that he was the Son of God was the evidence of his power and divine authority. His power was the power of God Almighty. Who else could still nature? Who else could walk on water? Who else could raise people from the dead? Who else could heal the deaf and the blind and the lame? Only through the power of God Almighty. This was no mere human being. This was someone that had the very divine power of God in everything he did. He could calm the storms. He could calm the waves uh, in every way. And so he had control over nature in every aspect. Uh, he had power over sickness, power over disease. Um, he raised the dead. And in every way, every step of his life, he exhibited the fact that he had the walk of God in all that he did. What an amazing life. And amazing. And when you see it, you see how evil tries to obscure it. And so despite the fact that he had all this, the religious elite still refused to accept him. Why? Because they were compromised. They were interested in their own private agenda. They weren't interested in the will of God. Uh, but, but you see how God took care of Jesus and, and elevated him in every way. Then there was the evidence of what we call fulfilled prophecy. Hundreds of years before his birth, the prophets of the Old Testament spoke at length about what would happen. And I told you that from Genesis right through the entire Bible, it's all about Jesus Christ. It's as if the hand of God took the pens of the prophets and directed it on the page as they wrote, uh, not even really understanding it, even to the fact of the place where he was born. Turn to Micah, if you would, one of the last books in the Old Testament. Micah, chapter 5. Would you turn there? Verse 2. And this is a passage now that's written about 500 years before Christ would be born. Verse 2, but you, Bethlehem Ephrata, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me 
one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Is that clear enough for you? Is that clear enough? You're confused? You're confused? Or how do you like that? Written hundreds of years before Christ would be born. Hundreds of years telling them that, that the uh, ultimate ruler of Israel, uh, who would come from origins of old, before time, ancient of days, ancient of days, would become out of that little town. And Bethlehem at that time was a little sheep town. Maybe it had a population of a of a hundred people. It was incredibly small. It's not like that now. It's it's a a, a, a pretty strong city, uh, very busy Palestinian city. But back then, it was an, an inconsequential dot on a map. And so here's the thing: the Jewish people didn't read these prophets. They weren't prepared. They weren't. They they hadn't been given this by the rabbis. They had neglected it. But but the wise men traveling out of present-day Iraq come because they had been in the school of Daniel, and they had studied the writings of the Bible. And so they knew that, that the, uh, God himself would come from Bethlehem. And so now they traveled many hundreds of miles from what is present-day Iraq to uh, effectively Jerusalem in order to find out the, the truth about the coming kingdom, king of, uh, of Israel. Because they had studied it. And so what does is, what is Herod do when they come here? He turns to his wise men and says, where, where will this take place? And what do they say to him? Bethlehem. How do you like that? Bethlehem. You see, they understood it. They just had not educated their people. Bethlehem. Uh, and, of course, the sadness of that is that ultimately uh, all of the ma male child children in Bethlehem, two years and, and uh, younger, would be slain because Herod was fearful of the fact that there would be a usurper of his kingdom. All right? But I want you to understand that they, they understood exactly what took place. Uh, then, then you want some more proof, turn to Psalm 22. And I've taught on this before, but it's appropriate now. When you talk about the fact that the Bible made it very clear what would happen with Jesus. Psalm 22. Uh, and in Psalm 22, this is a psalm written by David, and it is a prophetic psalm. It is prophetic because it speaks at length about the death of Jesus Christ, uh, about what he will see. Um, and, and, uh, and some of the words here are extraordinary. If you, if you look here, it, uh, again, you, you look at verse 17, it says, I can count all my bones. It's talking about a terrible death that will take place. It's actually writing about the crucifixion, even though it is written five or six hundred years before the crucifixion would even be invented, before it would be invented. This is 800, 900 years now, before 900 years actually, before Jesus would be born. Verse 17, I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Guess what? What happened at the base of the cross? They casted lots for his clothing. All right. They casted lots for his clothing. In fact, they divided his garments among them because some of his garments were of whole cloth. Uh, and so they didn't divide those, but they cast lots for those that, that were not able to be divided. 
and then what does it say? I can count all my bones. Why do you think that phrase was in there? That phrase was in there because God had decreed uh, that the Passover lamb would not have any of its bones broken. All right? Not have any of its bones broken. 1,200 years before, the direction is that the Passover lamb uh, will not have its bones broken, even as it's sacrificed. Well, guess what? One thing that's absolutely clear, that Jesus on the cross never had a broken bone. When they went to break his legs at the end, which was the normal course of events uh, in a crucifixion, he had already expired. So that the, the thieves on both sides of him had their bones broken, but not Jesus Christ. All right. You want to see the nature of prophecy, the nature of what we're dealing with uh, here. Uh, and, and so you read this psalm and when you read it, it goes over and over and over again about who Jesus is. Uh, verse 28, for dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations in every possible way. Verse 30, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. How about that? Here it is. Psalm 22, speaking eloquently about who Jesus is in every way. And so this is what God, this is how we know who Jesus is, that the Bible made it very clear. This is what it's about. Uh, and so we, we have that, that faith. Then look, look really, if you would, to Isaiah 53, which is just so incredibly beautiful. Isaiah 53. You know, I had a Jewish lawyer friend of mine who was in my building who would, was a very astute Jew and a devout Jew who would come up periodically and, and engage me in religious discussions. Uh, and, and I was happy to do that. Uh, and this is a guy who went to, to the temple every Saturday, never drove his car on Saturday. Uh, really a devout, brilliant lawyer. And so he's sitting in front of me, and uh, I said to him, you know, Ira, let me ask you a question. Have you ever read Isaiah 53? Did you ever read Isaiah 53? What do you think about Isaiah 53? He goes, oh, no. No. No, I don't read anything that will undermine my faith. I don't want to read anything that will undermine my faith. And then he said to me something that was very poignant. I don't think he realized himself how poignant it was. He said, you know, John, the difference between you and me is that you have grace. My eyes got like saucers. It was as if the Holy Spirit had taken his tongue and allowed him to say uh, an infinite truth that I'm not sure he himself understood what he was saying. The difference between me and you is that you have grace. And that's the answer. That's right. You have the grace of God. You have the Holy Spirit of God that has, has anointed you and has filled you. That's what it is. Uh, and, and that's what we want to give to these people. But look, look at this psalm, when you, this Isaiah 53, and it speaks eloquently about Jesus, who he would be. Uh, and and you, you look here at, at verse 2. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. And the Bible is clear about Jesus. There was no physical aspect of Jesus that would draw your attention to him. He was in every way just a regular, plain Jew. All right? There was nothing physically attractive about him. 
Uh, and, and, and then it says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. That's Jesus, a man of sorrows. He understood what it w meant to be persecuted and sad. And then look what it says in the next series of verses. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our soul's uh, sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God smitten by him and afflicted. Yeah, that's right. All right. He was our perfect sacrifice. Look, look at uh, the next verse right after that. Uh, verse five. But he was pierced for our transgressions and was crushed for our iniquities, pierced for our transgressions. Now, this this passage in Isaiah is written about 750 years before Christ would be born. And now to use the word, he would be pierced on a cross as a sacrifice for us. That's the prophetic nature of God uh, in, so, in so many ways. Uh, and you see it. Uh, he was, look, look at verse 9. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence. Now, let's understand what that means. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. When you died on the cross in Roman territory, you would be great. You would be buried in a common grave, a effectively a potter's grave. The bodies would be taken down and dumped into a pit. That's where Jesus would be assigned. But this verse says, uh, uh, but he would be buried with the rich in his death. Well, how did that happen? Well, it happened because probably the richest guy in Jerusalem was Joseph of Arimathea, who had become a Christian, and he and Nicodemus together came and took the body down from the cross, and instead of putting it in the common grave, they put him in the tomb that was reserved for a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea. Now, folks, this happened by accident? This happened by accident? Do you see the hand of God as if he's pulling the strings and opening the curtains and shutting the curtains. That's why we know who Jesus is. We don't take this in blind faith. We have the overwhelming prophetic proof of it in so many ways. And so you see it. Uh, and, and, and this Psalm, Isaiah 53 is incredible. Uh, and you see it in so many ways. Read Isaiah 53, especially so when it comes time for Easter. You read it and you will have your, your heart touched in a way that you can't possibly imagine. So uncounted details of his life over and over and over again were foretold by the prophets. This just wasn't an accident that Jesus just appeared. It was, it was determined from the, before the time of the creation that man would need a savior and that he would be, in fact, Jesus Christ. Now I want you to turn to one of my favorite passages in scripture, Luke 24. This is on the road to Emmaus, and I had the chance to be at Emmaus and look there. And if you go to Emmaus now, there's nothing but a derelict old church that dates back to about the year eight or 900. It's almost like a little missing spot off the road from Jerusalem. It's, it's amazing. But I wanted to go to Emmaus. The tour guide wasn't even going to take me there. But I said, no, I want to go to Emmaus. I want to stand on Emmaus. I want to see what it's like to experience that that position of what this is like. And so you know the story about Emmaus. You know the fact that it's the it's the third day 
and these two disciples, one is named Cleopas, we don't know the name of the other, but they're walking away from Jerusalem, and they're heartbroken. They're heartbroken because their world has collapsed. Their Messiah had been killed. They couldn't believe it. They thought that Jesus was the Messiah, and now, in fact, Jesus uh, is dead. And so they're heartbroken in every way. And I want to read to you uh, uh, some of the passages here from verse 13. That's Luke 24, verse 13. Now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and that's about what it is. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. So I want you to get a sense of what's going on here. Jesus has been buried for three days. He is now resurrected, and now he is now appearing to various disciples. He now comes with them, but his, his identity is hidden, and he's going to walk with them for seven miles. Now, theologians say that walking during that period of time, seven miles, would probably take five or six hours. And so imagine being with Jesus in a Bible study for for five or six hours. You think being with me for an hour is good? Are you kidding me? Imagine what it's like with Jesus, who effectively had created everything, who effectively was involved in the writing of Scripture. And now he's walking with them. He's walking with them. And, and so Jesus says to them, what, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And I always love when Jesus asks a question. Because he already knows the answer. You understand? He, not, he has the answer, but he wants them. He wants them to unburden himself. And so they begin to say, uh, and here, they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked them, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem? And do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, Jesus said. <laughs> Jesus, I love it. <laughs> what things? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and the rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Understand that redeem Israel. They always thought it was a political redemption, that their Messiah would take the boot and heel of Rome off, to, off them, not realizing that it was the redemption that was much more important, the redemption of the soul and spirit. Uh, and so we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day, the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who told them he was alive. And some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And so what does Jesus do as he responds? This is now Jesus becoming the great rabbi the great teacher, uh, and God himself, he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. How foolish are you? How slow are you that you have not believed everything that's in this book that the prophets have spoken about? Uh, did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? There it is. There's God himself outlining the very nature of why he came to this world. 
Yes, he had to suffer. Yes, he had to be persecuted. Yes, he had to be hung on a cross. Yes, it had to be done because we needed a perfect substitutionary sacrifice once and for all. It had to take place just as as he uh, as God has demanded it and and put it together. Uh, and so he said, did not the Christ have to suffer? And he began, verse 27, and this is the point I want you to reflect on. And now Jesus is beginning to teach the Bible to the disciples who ne really never were properly educated because the rabbis and the priests had not done it right. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. How about that? That is your Jesus opening the Bible and demonstrating that in every single book of the Bible, there's uh, passages relating to the coming of Jesus Christ. This is no mere accident, folks. This is why I'm teaching you this way and speaking to your hearts so that when you walk out that door, you can go to a world that says, oh, come on. You don't think he was really God. Yeah, not only do I know he was God, he was able to open the Bible and speak about it for thousands of years and prove that the prophets come from the beginning of time spoke about him in every possible way. Yes, he is God. Yes, he is God. All right. And there you can imagine what it had to be like. I hope someday when I get to heaven, they have a videotape of that. Because I'm going to that, that showing. Right? And I'm sure that that's going to happen in heaven, that you're going to be out. Wouldn't you like to sit there and see Jesus talking to these two guys, explaining to them about how everything in the Bible is about him? Really? The world is deceived. This is what gives me comfort. Even on days that things look bad and dark, you know, I reject that stuff. I'm interested in Jesus. I'm interested in him. I want to give him my life. I want to walk with him in every way. I want to enlighten the world about who Jesus is. I want to lift people up so that they're not dragged down in, a, in an evil world. And so beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning him, himself. And then think, look, look at what happens when you're in the presence of Jesus, when you're in the presence of the Holy Spirit. As they approached the village to which they were going, and so now it's at the end of this five or six hour walk, they, Jesus acted as if he was going farther. And I love how Jesus does it. Jesus doesn't force himself. You understand? Jesus doesn't say, I'm coming in with you guys. No, he doesn't say that. Jesus leaves us with free will. You understand what free will is? It means I'm, I'm moving. I'm going further. Oh, and yet these guys whose hearts were burning in the presence of Christ go, no, no, you can't go. You have to stay with us. You have to have dinner with us. We want you to stay. They urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them at this inn. And then when he was at the table, and this is just amazing, then he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it, give it to them. Can you imagine? It was as if they saw the Lord's Supper all over again as he took that bread and prayed and broke it in the very presence of the Holy Spirit, filling that in with Jesus. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. What a position this is. What a story this is. I've just given you the entire book of the Bible demonstrating that every passage in that Bible, every book talks about me. 
wow. It takes my breath away when I, when I focus on this and think how great God is. That God would, would bow to the human creation to that extent that he would spend that amount of time with two guys who didn't get it, but that it was important enough for God himself to stop, stop time and spend it with those guys. That's why we know who Jesus is. Make no mistake about it. This is no mere delusion of, of a man. It is the confirmation in every way. And then fourth, there was the evidence of the resurrection from the dead. Jesus was declared by the power of the resurrection from the dead to be the Son of God according uh, to the spirit of holiness. Look, if you would, to Romans chapter 1. Turn to Romans chapter 1. Beginning with verse 2. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. There it is. No one wrote it better than Paul. No one wrote it better than Paul. Only Christ in the history of the world only one man defeated death. There's only one man who was put in a tomb, who was dead for three days, who then walked out of that tomb and defeated death. Only one. Yes, Lazarus had a temporary, temporary resurrection because Jesus did it. But there's only one who was resurrected forever, and that is Jesus Christ. And I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Okay. Okay, here it is. Yes, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 to 8. Sorry about that. And here he is talking about now, remember this, that Paul became a Christian about four or five years after Christ was crucified. Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, all right, uh, and saved him on the road to Damascus. Shortly thereafter, he went into the Saudi Arabian desert and spent, according to him, 18 months in the desert, in isolation, effectively being taught by Jesus Christ one-on-one -on -one the gospel of Christ. That is why Paul refers to himself as an apostle who received the, uh, the scriptures directly bought from Jesus. You understand that? Now look at verse 3. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scripture, and that he appeared to, and now he's going to give you the factual evidence of who saw Jesus after he died and was resurrected, who walked with him, and here they are. Here's the list, and that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as one uh, abnormally born. How's that? Is that enough eyewitnesses for you? It's enough eyewitnesses for me. More than 500 people saw Jesus walk around for 40 days after he was crucified. And so the question is, there's only one man ever in the history of the world who defeated death. God himself. 
Jesus Christ. It's almost as if the Bible ought to be closed at that point. You need anything more than that. Uh, what's wrong with you? All right. What's wrong with you? Uh, and this is how you have to speak to people and talk to them. And so that you understand it. So there it is. That's the proof of who he is. And then certainly the additional proof is that that he is the son of God is the proof of changed lives. What other individual in the history of the world can change the reprobate lives of people other than Jesus Christ? And you know it yourself. You're all testimonies of that. You know where you were before. You know the kind of men that you were before. You know the kind of lives that you led before. You know where your spirit was before. You know how anger may have taken over you. And yet you know now that under the spirit of God that your life has changed. Not only is it changed, but it's changing daily as he's lifting you up. Only Jesus Christ, the son of God, can do it. And, and the Bible makes it abundantly clear that that's the case. That, that only Christ has the power to change the human heart. Turn to 1 Timothy. Amen. Turn to 1 Timothy as you understand this, that this is the proof of who Jesus is. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. I thank Christ, and this is Paul. I mean Paul. God love Paul. When I get to heaven, I want to spend some serious time with Paul. Really. I want to meet this guy. I want to meet this guy. They say he was a little man. He had a big nose. He was bald. Not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> but this guy was like dynamite. You understand? He was like dynamite. Look what he says. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he has considered me faithful, appointing me in his service. And he's appointing you all of you, in his service. He's doing that right now. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. Can you imagine? This is the great writer of two-thirds of the New Testament, the greatest evangelist in the history of the world, telling you about who he was before. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was a violent man. But Jesus Christ changed me forever. Look at that. Uh, and I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Oh, Paul, but you were a Jew's Jew. You were a Pharisee. You were on the Sanhedrin. But yes, I acted in ignorance. I didn't care because I thought I was in a denomination. And that's the proof for you that being in a denomination is not the answer. You understand? Don't think you're going to heaven because you joined the church. Don't think you're going to heaven because you may be Roman Catholic, all right, or Presbyterian, or Lutheran. Or Do yourself a favor. Don't mention any of that when you get to heaven. You understand? Don't mention any of that when you get to heaven. Because there's only one passport you're, pass you're, you're going to be carrying there, and it better have Jesus' picture on it. Because that's how you're going to get into the gates of heaven, with Jesus alone. And so you see that I was, I was ignorant and, and, and acted in ignorance and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith 
and love that are in Jesus Christ. That is the nature of what God has given us. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. And I could say that right now for me, that he saved me and I was a despicable human being. I was lost because I thought I wasn't lost. All right. And only when he revealed himself to me that who he was. And I understood that no one is holy. No one is holy. Uh, but we've walked within the, within Christ Jesus and he allows us. That's how I'm able to come up here and speak to you because I know what Jesus Christ has done for me and what God is doing for each one of you. Uh, and, 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 and in a very powerful way. He says, but for that reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Can I get an amen? I mean, this applies to every single one of you. That is why you can say this and pray it and believe it even on a day when there's bad news whether it's bad news in the newspaper or on the radio or bad news personally because you've gotten a bad diagnosis, I don't care. God is lifting you up and he's going to use you and he's going to take care of you. And so you see it. And the Bible tells us clearly that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. He is new. That's why I preached yesterday about good works because good works flows automatically when you are sold out to Christ. Good works take place because you're on the path of righteousness. It's not that you have created the works to walk in Jesus Christ. They are created for you. They come out of your salvation. You walk on a path of righteousness, and God gives you those works. And so turn also, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This subject is so powerful, I think like I need oxygen. <laughs> and I'm not kidding. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way, and we do so no longer. We don't regard Christ in a worldly way, that's for sure. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sin against them. Understand what that means. The new is here. The old is gone. You're not like the old man. God has taken that away. He has given you a new spirit. Why? Because he's reconciled you to God. What does it mean? He has made you a partner with Jesus Christ in the family of God. Jesus is your brother. He's your brother. He has reconciled you to that. This is what we, what we sometimes don't realize what it means. Yes, he's forgiven your sins, but he's done more than forgive your sins. He's now made you part of the family of God. He's reconciled you in the most powerful of ways. Oh, God, how great you have been. So he has the power to change the human heart. That is the proof of his divine nature. Nobody can change the human heart but Jesus Christ. 
All right? And so I've given you innumerable reasons why we know that he is God. From the Bible itself, from his power to control nature, from his ability to perform divine uh, ministry, uh, to, to heal in so many ways, and then finally to effectively uh, change the human heart. And so we bow before the Son of God as we recognize this and come to terms with who Jesus is. Uh, and, and so this is a powerful responsibility that you have. All right? You are the sons of God. There's a call on your life. You understand? There's a call on your life. You don't just get up uh, on a Monday morning because you're being entertained. You get up on a Monday morning because God is speaking to you from the Holy Spirit, filling your heart, and then sends you out those doors to go into a world that desperately needs to hear from you. And so start with your family. Start with your children. Start with your wife. Start with your friends and begin to teach them about what you're hearing, about who this Jesus was, because there is nothing more important in your life than Jesus Christ. Nothing. That is our worldview. That's why I can walk out there. I don't care about the radio. I don't care what's in the newspapers. It's Jesus first and only in every single way. Can I get an amen? amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you for this message. Father, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for this great gift for salvation, how you demonstrated to us for thousands of years who he was. You didn't expect us to take it on blind faith. You wrote it all down, Lord. And yet the world is so ignorant it doesn't understand it. But empower us, Father. Give us courage to leave here, to be able to speak about who Jesus was, to be able to expand the kingdom of God. Be with our men. Strengthen them. Encourage them in everything that they do. Lift them up. Don't let them be discouraged, Lord, to continue to walk with you and to be back here safely next week to continue the study of your word. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you all.